The reading for today from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Which I neglected to bring with me. It's like this all week around here. It's just, just think if they weren't here. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith and hope and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Well, as Pam already told you, um, we're doing something today that's a little different, and by different, I mean uh, really fun, although, you know, I'm a kind of a church nerd, so I think things are fun that maybe others don't, but you know how sometimes we have Sunday worship, and tucked in the middle of the worship service will be something like a baptism included, people making promises in the presence of God, and God making promises, and us all present and witnessing it all, and wrapping our prayers around it all, and part of the power of it all is that it's explicitly not just a family event, but is rather enfolded in the larger context of the church at worship. Well, I have made the possibility known for 35 years of being a pastor, and I am really excited about this because somebody finally took me up on it. And I'm talking about the fact that Danielle and Kyle are going to get married this morning right here in the context of the church at worship as they'll make promises in the presence of God and it's not just a private family event for we the church are here too witnessing it all and wrapping our prayers around it all and I do think this is going to be fun in a powerful kind of way. I asked Kyle and Daniel to choose some scripture readings for today. They chose two, one of them from Ecclesiastes, we're going to hear a little bit later. The other one from 1 Corinthians 13, I decided to read earlier. Um, Becca 
You'd have thought I'd remembered because I made that decision explicitly, but I decided to read it earlier because you want to know why. It's a great text to hear at a, at a, when people are getting married. It's just hard to imagine any text that's any better when people are getting married. But remember, Kyle and Daniel aren't just getting married today. They're doing so in the larger context of the church at worship, which gives us the opportunity to reflect on the fact that this powerful text, 1 Corinthians 13, wonderful to be read at a marriage, was not actually originally addressed just to a couple getting married, but it was addressed to the church. The church which Paul had started in this place called Corinth, where after he had left, well, people had started fighting. And what they were fighting about was a pecking order that had emerged in the church with some people convinced that they were better than, more spiritual than, closer to God than members of the church who they were quite sure weren't as good or as spiritual or as close to God as them. I was back in Lake Mills, Iowa, where I served for 15 years and I ran into a young man whom I confirmed a couple decades ago who told me that he and his wife had left their church and in fact, um, at this point, really had kind of left all church altogether <clears throat> because his wife had been previously married and then got divorced, at which point she was told that in that church she could no longer be a Sunday school teacher because Sunday school teachers had to be uh, better people than that. I urged him not to give up on church, but to find one that was more honest about the brokenness of the human condition which affects all of us not just some of us. In other words, and I mean, I was his confirmation teacher. I reminded him that he's a Lutheran. Well, that type of thing, that type of, some of us are holier than others of us and better than others, kind of just plain spiritual pride. It was what was going on in the church at Corinth, although the primary issue was one that some of us uh, may actually regard as a tiny bit obscure, but it was a big time issue at the time. The issue centered around what was called speaking in tongues, which is when people um, empowered by the Holy Spirit speak in a tongue, a language that they actually don't know how to speak. Pentecostal and charismatic churches still today are known for their emphasis on that sort of thing. I personally have never done that. I personally have never seen that done. Uh, but I know people who've told me they have, um, including two in particular, whom I respect deeply. And so I've absolutely taken them at their word when they've described this experience. Uh, both of them found it very powerful uh, on a deeply, beyond words, kind of personal level. Both of them, too, were incredibly humbled by the experience, which is part of why I take them at their word, because truly spiritual experiences don't birth spiritual pride. They birth humility. You can take that thought to the bank, by the way. If a spiritual experience does birth pride, then it is not a Holy Spirit kind of truly spiritual experience because the Holy Spirit and spiritual pride don't hang out together. Which takes us to the church in Corinth where the proud in the church, the spiritually self-proclaimed spiritually elite in the church, 
were those who had spoken in tongues and who had set up spiritual scaffolding in the church where they stood on the top tier and looked down on those who hadn't. Because, I mean, really, if you're a believer, but you can't tell us the day and the time and the place when you spoke in tongues of your faith in Jesus, then how can, I mean, how can we really be sure you're a believer at all? This was the issue in Corinth. By the way, churches do this with different issues. You know this, but this was the issue in Corinth. Which takes us to the chapter before uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which the math majors among you have already immediately concluded must therefore be 1 Corinthians 12. Thank you, math majors. Where Paul begins his launch into this type of thinking with people thinking they are better and more spiritual than others because they've experienced one particular type of top-tier, top-scaffold spiritual gift by writing in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, my goodness, do you hear this? What makes someone spiritual is God's Holy Spirit present and at work within them? And who are those in whom the Holy Spirit is present and at work? According to Paul, all who believe in Jesus. I'd even go further and say that even those who aren't even entirely sure about this believing thing, but sometimes find themselves thinking they wouldn't maybe mind believing, are spiritual too. For even just the desire to believe is the presence and the prodding of the work of the Holy Spirit within them. Don't be uninformed about spiritual gifts, Paul says, but rather be informed about this. When the Holy Spirit is present and at work in someone's mind or soul or heart or life, there, the first thing she starts to work on, the very first thing she starts to tug people's hearts and minds in the direction of is faith. Which means that Christ's church is not a place where the spiritually elite, standing on their spiritual high ground, look down at those not spiritual other people down there. The church, rather, spiritually speaking, comprises those who stand together on the common ground, level ground of our common faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. For, says Paul, no one can say or believe such without the power and the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. Which takes us to the rest of this chapter before 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul moves on to tell us that standing with one another on this same spiritually level ground of our common faith that Jesus Christ is Lord doesn't mean that we therefore on that same level ground are all the same as one another. For the Spirit doesn't stop by calling each of us to faith. The Spirit continues in the lives of all the faithful to hand out other gifts too. Varieties of different gifts to varieties of different people in varieties of different ways. But since one and the same Spirit is the giver of all the gifts, our differentness in the gifts we've been given doesn't create a pecking order 
with the spiritually elite and the spiritually common because those distinctions do not exist in the spirit's mind or in the spirit's creation any more than something like pride does. Rather, in our differences, precisely in our differences, in fact, better because of our differences, we are the church, which Paul calls the body of Christ. In the work and in the world, for Christ and for good, and none of us are the whole of the body. All of us, in different ways and with different gifts, are parts of the body. Some of us are the body's hands, calloused because hands are needed for Christ and for good. Some of us whose knees are calloused because our prayers are the prayers that are needed for Christ and for good. Some of us whose hearts are exactly not calloused. For ours is the compassionate tenderness that is needed for Christ and for good. Some of us whose mouths are called to speak, sometimes softly, tenderly, sometimes courageously, boldly, for Christ and for good. Some of us whose musical gifts are called to inspire the church for Christ and for good. Some of us whose leadership and organizational skills are called to mobilize the church for Christ and for good. Some of us whose resources are called to support the work of the church for Christ and for good. Some of us whose servant hearts and quiet ways and desire for no recognition whatsoever are at work in your own countless faithful ways for Christ and for good every single day. And even, says Paul, foreign as this may sound to some of us here, some of us, Paul says, for, raise, for we, ways and reasons that maybe only the Holy Spirit can understand might even be given that ability to speak in tongues for Christ and for good. Ah, but, Paul says, don't be thinking that any of those gifts are superior gifts that put you on that top scaffold of spirituality. Rather, Paul says, whatever are the gifts that God has given you, and by means by you, he means all of you, there do not exist ungifted people in Christ's church. But with whatever the gift is that the Spirit has given all of you, Paul says, strive with that gift for the one thing that is the highest gift there is. And what is that gift? Well, here it comes. 1 Corinthians 13, where with all of that context now having set it up, Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers. I understand all mysteries, all knowledge. If I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
Add all of that together. And now I'm talking about spiritual math. Add all of that together. And here's Paul's image of a church that is truly spiritual. For it is a place and community where God's Holy Spirit is alive and at work. Number one, all are called to the common ground of our common faith in our one and the same Lord called to that faith, called to grow in that faith. Two, beyond that, all are gifted in different ways, not all the same, but all necessary and important in their own ways. And finally, and above all, three, all in some ways use their gifts, both in the church and in the world, in both visible and invisible ways, in both up front of everybody and ways so more often in behind the scenes ways, use their gifts for Christ and for good and for forever, guided by the greatest gift there is, that being the gift of love. The love Paul is talking about here course you do need to remember the love Paul is talking about here is something the world by and large isn't talking about when it over and over uses and overuses the word love to refer to something that is primarily um, just a feel a feeling because the greatest thing there is that Paul is talking about here isn't just the feelings that one feels but the life that one lives and the actions that one takes nothing wrong with feelings I mean, spend all the time you need to with your therapist or in honest self-introspection to be able, as aware of as you can about your feelings. That's a good thing. It's just that feelings of love aren't here what Paul calls the greatest thing of all. For the greatest thing of all is love that is oh so much more than a feeling for what it is is a way of life. For love, Paul says, remember, is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never ends. And that never-endingness is the reason that love in the end is the greatest thing there is. Greater even than the two other great things Paul talks about, faith and hope, which truly I'm telling you, and Paul tells you too, are two great things. They're the two greatest things there are after love. If you are not, if you are not rich in faith and hope and love, you are not rich at all. These are the greatest things there are. But even faith and hope aren't as great as love for one reason. That being that they will come to an end. For one day, that which we can now only see through the lens of faith, we will at last be able to see with our own eyes. As one day, that which we can now only hope for, will at last be ours to have and to hold. Faith and hope and love, Paul says in other words, are the greatest three things there are in this life, but love is the greatest one of all because at last, when we are ushered into the presence of the one in whom we've believed, 
to then know and see all that he has promised and wrapped around forever, we will no longer need faith, for we will see. And we will no longer need hope, for we will have what we'd hoped for. But still there will be, forever there will be love. Because why? Because remember what is said elsewhere. God is love. So what else could forever possibly look like but love? In the meantime, sisters and brothers, you are Christ's church and your call, your call from God through the Holy Spirit with the gifts you have been given is to look like and to act like and indeed to be the love of God for the world, alive and at work in the world, in and through you.